Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty at stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. All right, folks, this episode is just plain awesome. Our guest is Ryan Anderson. Ryan is a Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal Master Chief with over 26 years of service, including 20 years in special operations and nine separate combat deployments. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. We talk about the importance of committing to continually sharpen your most basic skills, about how to design and execute training that compounds knowledge, adapts to changing circumstances, and most importantly, improves real-world performance. We talk about how the initial approach to an explosive device mirrors the initial approach to a sick patient. We talk about jujitsu, emergency medicine in general, and somehow even talk about the story of the three little pigs. I have definitely changed things in my own practice based on this conversation, and I'd love to hear what you think about it. If you want to leave a comment, head over to emergencymind.com slash contact. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. All that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. All right. Awesome. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. I am I am just really jazzed to have you here to talk about this stuff, and I'm, I'm hoping we can cover... Uh, a lot of really deep, interesting stuff today in this conversation. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, the invite, having me here. Oh, the, the, the honor's mine, man. And, and right away, thank you for your service and, and, and everything that you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for what you guys do, too. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> right on. Um, I, I was hoping we could start with just some really basic stuff. So, so for those of us that um, that are in sort of a different branch of the universe than you. What What is EOD, and what is it that you actually spend your time doing and training people to do? Uh, so EOD stands for Explosive Orders Disposal. So I'm uh, in the Navy, so Navy Explosive Orders Disposal. Uh, EOD is represented in all four branches of service, um, and each branch kind of has their own uh, unique identity, and obviously the Navy's main uh, focus is underwater. Um, everybody covers conventional, unconventional, uh, nuclear, radiological, biological, and then but the Navy's the only one that deals with anything in the water. Um, and Navy, because of our our uh, specialized mobility sets of uh, parachute insertions and diving and technical diving, because uh, we use rebreathers uh, that take us to 300 feet, um, we get paired up with. Uh, the military special operations units uh, more often than not. So Navy SEALs, Army Special Forces, Rangers, and even up, up to the national mission unit levels. And what is it that, that drove you into that field in particular? Um, the unknown. Uh, I was actually in Navy scuba diving school and coming from Iowa in the Midwest, never really thought about getting into that kind of uh, arena and when I and I was super interested in it but I didn't want to be a deep sea diver and cleaning the bottom of ships 
and they told me, hey, UD does diving also. A couple of uh, friends uh, that I had been uh, on in a command with before had gone to the UD program. So I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. Um, and then one of my instructors said, well, it's going to be really hard. I don't know if you're going to be able to pull it off. And I said, challenge accepted. Um, and literally a week after graduating scuba school, I put in a package to go to UD. Amazing. Um, and, and had you been exposed to scuba when you were a kid or to diving when you were a kid? Not at all. Never no. even thought about it. Wow. So what was your what was your first time like? Sort of like, you know, what was it to, to make that jump to say, okay, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go underwater and, and dig into this stuff. I think one of the biggest allures was being uh, military scuba, military diving was the physical challenges leading up to even getting into the program. And then the physical challenges uh, throughout, throughout the, the training pipeline. So the running, the swimming, all the, the, the push-ups, pull-ups, the sit-ups um, definitely was outside of my comfort zone of being an Iowa boy. <laughs> hmm. and, and so have you, do you feel like you've always been motivated by that, that challenge, that, that, um, that desire to sort of push yourself and see how far you can go? I think it, it's, it's always been there in small bits. Um, and then it's just come out more and more, uh, you know, so that's, I mean, that's how I got into scuba. And then when I heard about EOD, their physical challenges, uh, were same and greater in a much longer program. And it was very academically challenging as in the realms of dealing with, you know, physics and math and, uh, a lot of memorization. Um, so it really was taking me outside of my comfort zone. So not just physically challenging, but other personal challenges um, that I would have to, to deal with, which was, the I think, some of the biggest allures. Like, I really didn't know what EOD was about other than people said, this is really hard. I was like, hmm. great, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this, and, and obviously I don't, I, I don't even begin to understand the reality of the world that you guys operate in. But to me, the idea of being underwater trying to stay alive and then to make complicated decisions that involve math and physics in small periods of time oh, oh and if you you know with the risk of like exploding if you get it slightly wrong yeah. i mean what an incredible pressure cooker uh, what was it like the like how do you even start to approach learning how to do something like that uh that's a great question um i mean it's military so it's it's not like a like a high school or a college course you know they just kind of like it's it's very fast paced um and it's you know pass or fail the the, the saying they used to have in eod was initial success or total failure um I think it, it it touched on people's uh uh heartstrings a little bit um so they kind of did away with it but a lot of the older guys still kind of like go by it just because that's what it is so they put they put a topic out in front of you uh the instructors facilitate the lesson. You take as many notes as you can, commit it as much to memory as you can, and then you take a test, and then you either pass or you fail and you move on. And then there was uh, not just a written test, but they would get into practical tests. So now you're starting to learn about uh, the different types of ordinance items and the different render safe procedures, uh, how to dispose of it, how do they work. So it became a lot of hands-on too. So you would do the, the academic side to kind of learn about the, the items and the procedures, and then they would take you out, and then you actually have to physically do these and accomplish these things. Uh, 
Um, and it was the same thing. Uh, lots, lots of pressure. They put the clock on you. You have a certain amount of time to complete the task um, uh, and the procedures uh, by the by the book. Um, some of it's by memorization. Some of it's um, uh, technical. So learning a technique and then implementing that t technique. So a lot of uh, the instructors are they do a lot of I'll sh I show you do. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I was always pretty good with my hands, like kind of growing up, like I loved like the fiddle of things. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of fit right in there. And again, like I really didn't know what EOD was about. I just kind of kept going with the flow and it became more and more intriguing and more and more alluring and more and more challenges uh, as, as I turned each page. So that, I think that's what kind of kept me in it. Uh, and, and I've been doing it for 20 years now. Hmm. And that's really similar to sort of a, a somewhat older school, or, or at least uh, still use sometimes uh, mentality in, in the medical field, which is that you train something by you see one, you do one, and you teach one, right? That sort of idea, yeah. like you, you watch a procedure, then it's up and you're doing it, and then like your next job is to immediately turn around and teach the next person how to do it. And there's something about that arc of sort of um, needing to then turn around and explain the procedure to the next person that really cements that that learning for you. Um, yes. Now, yeah, I, I, I guess, would definitely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I would guess that that said, you know, I think at least in medicine, we're, we're trying to move partly away from that idea into more like, are there reusable tools and concepts that you can train yourself on that, that help you across the entire board, right? So there are still procedures that you do that maybe you've only seen once or that you've, you know, you've, um, you've practiced once or twice on a mannequin or something, but, but what about the other stuff? Like how, how do you prepare somebody for, uh, the overall skill set of like, of like having to make these decisions under pressure like that? Cause that's not something you can really see, do and teach in the same way. No, very true. So lots of sea stories. Um, uh, so like you said, it's, you, you get the older, more experienced guys, they come in and share their their knowledge and their experiences and their and their practicals um and so there there's a lot of passing things on um but then what we have a tendency to do because i was also an instructor uh, at ud school several years later um and and then throughout our jobs we do take a training role so it's our responsibility uh, the more senior you get to train the next the next junior people coming in behind you so we're we're constantly in a training training fashion, which does solidify, kind of like you're saying, it solidifies what you've learned. Um, but, but what I've found is there, there's a base knowledge, and it's never failed me in the last 20 years, going through, you know, from the, the basic to the senior to the master tech levels, which is our, our level of badges, and then uh, eventually going on to the national mission unit, and then going to be an instructor. So going from the pinnacle tier one, uh, units down to being an instructor at the basic EOD school again, um, these core tenets always seem to follow me. And mm. it, it took it took several years to kind of like, put my finger on it. Um, I mean, the term like keep it simple. Um, that's kind of like where we, we kind of fall, fall in line with is the basics. There's a set of core principles that you learn in EOD school, the basics, that you just keep implementing over and over and over again throughout your career and you get better and better at those basics where they become almost reflexive in nature. 
so when you find yourself in these extremely demanding and challenging environments, it just comes natural to you. Hmm. Um, and, and these core basics, usually uh, they buy you time to kind of like let the situation uh, like kind of unravel a little bit so you can see the bigger picture, allows you to get the blinders off and, and take, a, take a breath, get your heart rate back down. And then you can start moving into the more like technical, more advanced steps that may need to be used to accomplish the task. Hmm. I mean, I think there's a, a, a really obvious parallel there to what we train to do in the first couple moments of responding to a complicated case or a, a trauma or medical or whatever, which is the idea of, you know, approach from the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. Yes. And you train and overtrain those basics. So no matter how chaotic the situation is in front of you, you deploy your basic package. And just like the words that you said, that you deploy the basic package and then allow the situation to unravel in a way that you can you can work yourself into. Um, but that idea of having a, a, a package of basics that's so well trained that you can deploy it no matter what situation you face is not an like it's easy to talk about that. It's a lot less easy to build that and have that baked into you. So it's you know it's yeah. in your bones, so to speak. Um, what was that process like for you? And when you guys were training, what was it like to develop that basic package of skills? Um, it lots of, lots of sets and reps. Um, you know, over time I learned about the rule of ten thousand, uh, which I'm like it totally makes sense. Uh, you know, ten thousand you know bullets fired down range or ten thousand. Uh, reps of reading something or 10,000 reps of, of turning that bolt or 10,000 reps of doing these procedures um, where it becomes more, more natural, more reflexive. But we, we, our cycle uh, is usually, is, is extremely repetitive. Like you, you build your team and then you start at the basics again. Um, and as a new guy, you're like, okay, this is kind of like UD school. Uh, and you implement the basics over and over again in each of our different mi mission areas. Like we have like an improvised explosive device mission area, conventional ordnance mission area, a chemical biological mission area, a nuclear ordnance uh, mission area. And you train in each of these specific mission areas for a, a, a period of time, however long it takes to cover the material. Um, and then in, in the basics. Um, and that's basically like in the classroom or in the shop or in the field out back and then you move into what we call an advanced phase where we start adding like a scenario to to these mission sets so there's a there's a situation that's driving you to be in the environment you're in there's there's an identified environment that you're trying to exist in um and then this problem is in the middle of this uh, of this situation or scenario and environment um which is going to drive you to uh, work uh, newer techniques, uh, so techniques, tactics, and procedures, um, which we, we develop uh, over time and, and share amongst ourselves. Um, and, then, and then after advanced phase uh, is completed, we, we deploy. So now, now we're in, in our advanced phase, we try to mirror our deployment environment as much as possible to try to make you comfortable and immune to what you could be going into. Uh, we call it a, a perspective or a possible operational environment or per perceived operational environment. Um, and, then you, and then when you're on deployment, we're kind of like firefighters. We're like standing by for chaos. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and with, I love and, that. And, and, you know, and if it's doing uh, roadside IED response, if it's doing on base response, if it's supporting a conventional unit moving through an area of operation, supporting special operations unit moving through an area of operation, whatever it is, we just bolt on. We try to assess the the environment or the scenario uh, as much as possible to kind of give us some what ifs, um, and then we just kind of hold on for the ride. And then as the scenarios uh, show up in front of us, we we start with the basics. Like we kind of you're saying the ABCs. And so like we have a uh, a set base of safeties that we employ to help uh, keep us safe and those around us safe and to preserve property and life. So man, so so much cool stuff to dig into there. So uh, that idea, um, and this is very similar to what a couple of the other guests in the podcast have talked about, about both both folks that are in the Navy and then also um, Professor Gustavo, one of our jiu-jitsu coaches that came on to the podcast, talking about this idea of like, how do, you, how do you learn something, right? You learn the skill in isolation and then you add pressure to the situation and then you build a situation on top of that that's as much as possible like the real environment you deploy it in and then you go out and you practice it and then you start learning it for real at that point. Right yes. when you're out there really deploying it. Yes, um, yes. Then you upgrade your systems and you're like, okay, w- what do we do better here? How do we go back and figure it out? And and that idea that we're all sort of continuing to de- like development doesn't stop when you're out there deploying your skills, right? That's no. when development really starts. That's when you're that's really when you, start to dig in. Yeah, that's when you like really start to tweak and and tighten up what you what you've been learning and implementing. Um, and then that's where the C stories and the confidence and the procedures really come out and so the people that implemented those procedures come back and tell their story and then they share their story and then they train their story and they, and then they create a scenario and that's usually mm. those real world events fall into our advanced phase training events because it's based off of a real story interesting so you guys make that a very formal process right like you come yes. back from from a mission and you say look this thing happened now let's run a scenario to see what you would do in that situation Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, you can call them you know, postmortems, after action reviews, after action reports, and so we we will take as as much detailed notes as we possibly can on like you know where the, the five W's, where it was, who did it, what they do, why they do it, you know, um, and, and and document all that stuff, and then we put it into a repository that anybody can draw from, hmm. and then usually the guys that come back from deployment um, will fall into a training role. For a period of time so they can either share those stories with the training department and get them on file and help them build a scenario around it or they will actually be part of the training department for a period of time and implement that scenario uh, and assess people on that scenario that they actually lived oh that's that's so interesting and that's a, a subtle but really important difference between how medicine works for that for us usually uh, you graduate through your residency training and then you fall either into the category of the person on the front line doing it or the person slightly slightly back teaching the next generation. But it's really rare to have crossover back and forth like that, which I think is something we could certainly be be improving on. You know, this idea of, of formalizing the relationship between go out, like get in the dirt, see what happens and then bring it back and train people and like and like repeat that cycle sounds incredibly strong. Yeah, it, it does. It, it really it it does work. Um, 
when back when the our combat deployments were uh, more rapid, we had a lot of guys uh, doing a quick workup cycle, going on deployment, coming back, and only home for a few months. Then they turn around, and go right back out the door again. Um, and and so now we're having less and less real world application, just because the operational environments, you know, war war combat deployments are are coming uh, less. Um, so it, I, you can see it in our training, you can see it in our readiness, our overall readiness. Mm-hmm. There's less real world stories and real world scenarios to fall on and now the stories are more well in training or in this in this training event this is what happened but there was no real uh, penalties involved Mm -hmm. um and so it adds a little bit of of uh mickey's world that we say to to the scenario so we try to make our training events as rigorous relevant and realistic as possible to Mm -hmm. induce to induce um um, that learning curve. Uh, so, and and then like in that advanced phase, I mean, we can take the same scenario and twist it as many ways as possible. And the idea behind it is to give that individual or that team um, some sets and reps. I've seen, even though it's a, a training environment, but to give them as many sets and reps of different scenarios and experiences to draw from where, you know, in the past, guys would come back from the combat deployments with 100, 200, 300 real-world calls, hmm. and and that's their experience pool um, to draw from. And now the guys aren't getting that as much, so we try to create it in our advanced phase training. Hmm. So it's it's uh, a lot of uh, uh, re- repeat, rinse, reset, repeat, rinse, reset, and 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 just to try to give each of the individuals as much experience as they possibly can to draw from. Yeah. You know, there's um, one of the folks that came on previously, Lieutenant Commander Andrea Austin, who's with the Naval Trauma Training Center, um, was talking a little bit about a similar idea where she was saying, how do you prepare people to do events where maybe nobody that's training them has ever even done the event before, right? Mm -hmm. Or where you don't have that huge backlog of real world sort of experience to it. Um, and she said something that really stuck with me, which was your patient doesn't care how rare the procedure is, right? The equivalent of which I guess would be like, your team doesn't care if nobody's ever disarmed this type of device before. Yeah. You still have to figure out a way to do it. And, and building a training program that incorporates as much of the real world knowledge, but also develops people that are flexible enough to approach new problems, mm-hmm. perhaps with that same mindset we were talking about, about deploy the basics and then let it unravel. Like that's a that's a real serious challenge and a and a fascinating problem to try to approach with obvious obvious implications. No, uh, it, it really it really is. Um, it, it is a challenge to try to keep things rigorous and relevant. So we're constantly trying to analyze uh, possible operational environments. You know, there's certain areas of the world that we just aren't in that often. So we try to do as much research as we can on what those environments look like, you know, weather conditions and, you know, what's the dirt like and how do you get around and what are the historical threats or hazards that other people have seen or talked about. Um, and sometimes the, the historics are like decades ago, mm-hmm. but 
that but that's the best you can pull from but we've also seen is that with technology now uh, you know the internet and and smartphones um bad guy events are very prolific so just because you you know what you see in one country uh, or region of the world you there's a really good chance you're going to see it in another region of the world just because people are sharing across the dark web mm-hmm. um so sometimes uh even though this scenario took place in one country that we routinely deployed to doesn't mean you won't see that roughly the same type of device uh, in another region of the world. So a desert environment to a jungle environment or an urban environment. Um, but what we found though is whether it's desert, jungle, uh, uh, urban, uh, underwater, maritime, there's still some core sets of skills that get you started in the problem. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we often use the term threat assessment, um, and that's, that's our, that's our gateway to the problem. That's our doorway. Like we don't step through the threshold until we've conducted threat assessment. So, so maybe let's do that. Let's, let's shift gears slightly and push. So, um, can you, can you take us through like a theoretical event. So you're, as you, as you put it so awesomely, you're standing by for chaos and your team gets the call like, Hey, we need you to come like help us with this, this object that we found. Um, as you guys go and approach that, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What is it like for you to deploy that set of basic skills right at the beginning? So EOD school, our, our, our core school does a really good job of giving us various environments. So one of the very first things you do, well, you, you get into theater. There's no chaos going on yet. Um, you're trying to like take in like, you know, what the environment is. Just like when you're going to walk out the door from your house, like, is it hot? Is it cold? Does it is it might rain? You know, what's the traffic look like? So you can kind of prepare for it mentally, um, not just with tools, but mentally. Because if you if you try to pack for every occasion, you're always going to leave the house with a gigantic suitcase. So sometimes right. just preparing mentally um, is enough to allow you to overcome or adapt to different scenarios. So that's one of the first things we do. Um, but as you're as we're waiting for the fire alarm, the notional fire alarm to go off or the notification, and I'll keep it very conventional, um, a conventional military or army or marine corps patrol uh is going through a region and they come across an unexploded ordnance item um we don't know if it's improvised in nature or if it was a a mortar that was fired you know that day or weeks ago and it's laying there on the side of the road or it's laying there in the field um so the so when we receive the call we just we start asking the questions you know what did you see? What did it look like? How close did you get to it? Can you draw me a picture? Can you give me some dimensions? Um, what are the colors? Is there anything that stands out to you, like marks or uh, something that stands out to you? Um, and then as they start to like describe it, we start, you start going through this mental inventory. You know, like they tell you these dimensions. You're like, okay, here's what it's definitely not. And then you start to narrow it down to here's what it could be. Um, and, and we have categories of ordnance. You know, we have rockets, you have missiles, you have projectiles, you have dispensed munitions. So you can start ruling things out. 
So now you can really start to hone down um, a set of safeties that are involved with these different ordinance items. Um, and, and with the physical size of it, you can kind of estimate the amount of explosives that are in it. So that's going to tell me how far I need to push um, unnecessary people away from to keep them safe. Um, because that's our number one priority, preserve life and then property. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to push people back, uh, unnecessary personnel back to a safe distance based off of the dimensions that were told to us. Um, and then we're asking for colors because when it comes to ordinance items, colors mean stuff. Uh, if it has like colors of bands on it, that can mean it's carrying um, some kind of chemical like like a, like a CS or a, a smoke or an incendiary, or is it just explosives? Um, if you, when we start a asking for like the certain things you see on it, they see sco scoring or scratches, that could mean it was fired. If it looks clean and pristine, that means it was unfired. It could have just fell out of somebody's bag or off the back of a truck. So not, if it's been fired, now our... our, our uh, awareness is going to go up a little bit more because now there's, you know, uh, hazards associated with diffusing. Um, so as we as we go through these questions, that's going to allow us to walk out the door. Mm. So before we walk out the door, we, we already have a set of scenarios in our head. And as a team, we're, we're discussing it as individuals. We're thinking about it um, so we don't approach the, the scenario in an unsafe manner. Right. So you're doing the what the Stoics would call pre pretty premeditatio malorum, right? Like thinking through what bad is going to come your way ahead yes. of time before you even get anywhere near this thing. Yep. Yep. Uh, and so so once we get on scene, um, we'll we'll talk to witnesses. You know, again, kind of confirming what did we see, and then even to the point of like, well, how close did you get to it, and where were you standing when you saw it? Because in our mind, you survived. So that would possibly be a safe spot to, to approach from. Um, and then we obviously we won't take them back down with us, but we're going to ask them and they'll kind of draw it out a map or describe it. Um, and then because our ultimate goal is to do what we call a long range recon to put our eyes on it. And we're going to try to do it from a distance. Uh, obviously, distance is our friend. Um, and we're going to try to do it from a safe, a safe distance as possible um, to start developing our own. Uh, uh, assessment of what it truly is and then that's going to allow us to uh, observe different safeties to get closer to the item where we can do what we call close and recon and that's going to tell now now we're going to know exactly what it is um, and then we have publications we can go review to confirm we can we can go in and find the oddities that are with that piece of ordinance um, some of, some of our publications would tell us how to uh, properly and safely render it safe because we know how it works. Um, and then uh, if we need to dispose of it, it's going to tell us how to dispose of it, hmm. uh, if there's any uh, nuances specific to it. So the, the operational principles that I'm hearing are to like have a safe buffer zone around everything you do to protect yourself and your team and then to do everything you can to eliminate uncertainty as much as possible. Yes. To, to yeah, minimize yeah. the variables because you have this pressure filled environment, which is that you don't really know, but there's always this tension, right? Because yeah. if you delay too long or uh, what's the right way to say that? I guess what I'm saying is when you're in a, an environment where there is significant pressure, 
like you have to make this trade-off between gathering more information, eliminating uncertainty, and then also waiting too long so that things get worse or bad on you. And there's yes. always that tension in there. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in a, in a uh, permissive environment, so a safe environment, to a, a non-permissive environment, so a very heavily combat-related uh, environment, um, we, we call it uh, time on target. So you try to minimize your time on target, and that, that term can be used in many ways as some items may have a, a timing device that's counting down. So the longer you're there or the longer you're messing with it, the, the higher your risk. If you're uh, in a non-permissive environment, the longer you're there, the, the, the more chances of like the enemy having enemy contact. So now you're not only dealing with this hazardous device, but you're dealing with the enemy simultaneously yeah yeah i think that that's such an that's a i don't think i've used those words before but i'm gonna i'm gonna definitely incorporate that in our emergency care as well right like thinking through is this case in a permissive environment where the patient is relatively stable and we have the time to sort of debate and decide the best course of action pursue mm -hmm. testing to eliminate uncertainty and sort of increase our overall awareness or is this a non-permissive like must act right away environment where like if you don't choose this right away this patient is now dead Right. Yes. Like figuring yeah. out what you're in is a really big step right at the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's actually particularly hard often for sort of the more junior operators to figure out, like, am I in a permissive or non-permissive environment? Because yeah. things that are things that actually might be permissive often feel non-permissive when your skills are still building up. Right. You feel this extra sense of pressure and learning how to say, OK, well, maybe that's not real. I can let that pressure go and think slower. Um, how did you guys, how did you first start training those ideas? Um, I, mean, I think, I think, I mean, at, from day one of EOD school, we're, we're implementing these basic skills and they build on each other. Each, mm -hmm. and we, we call it divisions, but they're classes. So each class covers, you're in a certain, you're in a, a particular class for a, 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 a week or two weeks, sometimes three weeks where you're learning specific types of ordnance, um, whether it's you're, you're learning uh, how, how to use explosives and for to, as a tool to all the safety associated, then you're moving into uh, what we call tools and methods. So you're using uh, specific EOD-related tools and you're learning how to build them up and implement them. Um, and then you're getting into what we call core division, which is kind of covering the broad realm of different types of ordnance items and some basic safeties and commonalities, like some safeties carry over from different types of ordnance items. And then you get into your specific ones, so like ground ordnance. So basically anything that's in the ground or it lays on the ground is covering ground ordnance. And then air division is anything that flies to the air, so missiles, rockets, uh, airplanes, uh, hazards associated with aircraft, to the point where we get into radiological nuclear, where we talk about uh, nuclear and radiological uh, weapons and devices and hazards to, to underwater stuff. Um, but what we, at the end of it all, what we're trying to, the, the trick is to, sh to build the confidence in the student that since day one, you've been building on everything, everything compounds. Mm -hmm. So each division, there's something new, but there's also a repeat of what you learned in the previous division. And then you move on to an, even when you, uh, for the Navy guys, like we go through all of the conventional ground type of divisions, and then we get in underwater. 
But we're trying to tell them, like, when you get to underwater, that safety you learn day one in demolition division carries all the way here to underwater. And then that safety you learned in ground division, that same safety carries over here to underwater. So when you break it down, there's really only a set of core safeties instead of like, it's, so it becomes less overwhelming mm-hmm. and, and it's repetitive learning and, and compounding on top of it. Yeah. So again, so they, they learn something new, but then they also see that this new, this other thing we talk about is a repeat from their previous division. So they can, they continue to compound on each other. That's so, yeah, man, that's, Building training that compounds, hitting it over and over again in the basics, making sure that you can deploy that skills, that basic skill package in a moment's notice without hesitation, without fear, and then trusting that you're going to find something to step up behind that once you do it, right? Which, yeah, and you, well, you no, said trust. No, you said trust. Yeah. That's great. That's that's a big one, especially with our new guys, is trying to build their confidence to trust what they know, mm-hmm. like because because the process of learning has been so repetitive um, and we've shown it in so many different ways. It gets to a point where you, you get, you got to ask them like, what was your first instinct? Because, because we've been building on this so much trust that first instinct because it's probably right. Mm-hmm. Cause if you overthink it, now you make it complicated or you think it takes a advanced skill or that ninja skill, you know, now you're, you're overthinking it and you're going to miss it. Or you're going to increase your time on target because you're overthinking it. But if you just do the whole, you know, keep it simple um, and stick to your core, the core is going to allow you to kind of unravel the scene and clear the layers of the onion, peel it back per se, and see what your true problem is. Um, and then you can attack the true problem. But you got to get down to it first, trusting your instincts because we've been building on it your entire career. I mean, even when I got to the National Mission Unit and we're, we're training at these super high level uh, with super technical devices, it's the core skills that always got us downrange on top of the problem and allow us to uh, dissect the problem. There's always the core skills. Mm-hmm. That's man, that's so cool. That 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 passion about mastering your basic skills and deploying them as much as possible, and and not using a ninja skill when a basic skill is the appropriate thing to do. Yeah. That's I mean I, you know I see that all the time in in the ER, but also in like in like jujitsu training, right? Where like yes. there's just like oh, you know man a basic skill. I don't have this problem because I don't really have ninja skills in jujitsu, but yeah, you know you see that where people are like, I'm gonna try this complicated flying maneuver when actually like no, you just deploy the basic skills and you get really good at them and you train and you train and you train on the basics. It's it's so funny you say that because I I I've been training off and on for a few years, but I'm still at the you know the very uh, rookie level. But I was watching this great video uh, and the Gracie brothers were talking about it. And they broke it down to like four very core skills, mm-hmm. defend, control, escape, then submit. Like there's like, they're like, it's all about staying safe. So defend, defend, defend. And then when you're done defending, you need to try to take control of the situation as much as you can by just taking control, not, not looking for the submission or for the quick win, but taking control, which allows you to slow everything down. And then if you get compromised, you need to escape because that takes you back to step one, defend, then control. And they said the longer you defend and control 
and and keep yourself safe, your opponent is going to give you a submission, and you're going to have to take it because it's going to be so obvious. You have to take it. But they, it, and it, there's a, uh, four great YouTube videos about it, and it was just so awesome. Like, oh my gosh, like that's that core skill again. Defend. I mean, was, as as a white belt, I go in with an upper belt. I don't worry about trying to submit submit them because there's no way. Yeah. So my goal it. is to go. How long in this five minutes can I survive without compromising myself? Mm-hmm. So I just defend, 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 and then I it control is more like control my own emotions, control yeah, my sure. breathing, you know, for sure. um, and not so much controlling that individual, but keeping control of myself so I don't compromise myself. You know how many times. You know, if you, you, you get kind of caught up in the moment and you get away from defending and you stick your arm up there and and, 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 and you can take it in reverse, you're like, he had to take it. I gave him the arm bar. Or I gave him the key lock. I gave it to him. I gave him my neck. Like, he didn't take it. He, he didn't force me into it. I gave it to him. He may have set me up, you know, to uh, uh, kind of lead me down that path because that's what he wanted because he's just that smart with it. But I gave it to him, so he had to take it. It's a core skill. But if you play it safe and you just focus on staying safe, defending yourself, like just like if you were in a street fight, not a competition, real life, your number one goal is to stay safe, defend mm-hmm. yourself. And then once all that stuff is settled, then you win the fight. Because the longer you uh, sustain from... The, the conflict, the enemy, the opponent, eventually they're going to reveal a vulnerability because you're hoping they're not as trained as you are. Mm-hmm. And they're going to like get frustrated and give in. And you're just going to have to take it. Yeah. And I, I think there's, there's, there's this thread we're hitting on here that incorporates all of the things we're talking about, right? Where there's the idea that you're sort of preparing yourself for when something happens to do those first moments automatically, whether it is approaching a piece of ordinance or working a case or doing a jujitsu match and Mm -hmm. just trusting that the next couple steps are going to happen as long as you focus where you have control and where you have control is what you said controlling your emotion controlling your breathing controlling your thought process controlling how much you trained in the days and weeks before like you don't have control over what's in front of you right like i mean like you guys never get to pick what piece of ordinance you're trying to disarm Mm -hmm. right I never get to pick what comes in the door for the ER. You never get to pick what moves your opponents play in jiu-jitsu. What right. you get to control is yourself and your own version of that. Yeah. Um, so being okay with that and trusting in your training and trusting in your ability to take over your own your own skill set is yeah, it's big. Yeah, it's huge. And and like as I as I go through my jiu-jitsu journey, I, it, it plays more and more. Like every time I get caught, ninety percent of the times because I gave it to him. Mm. I, I mean, I, either I pushed off, you know, trying to frame off and they took my arm or I, I, or I turned the wrong way. Like I gave it to them. And it's not like they were, and they were just patient. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I mean, when you, I, I, I laugh all the time, like, you know, the upper belt. So I say the hardest person on the mat is a brand new white belt because they're so spastic and uncontrollable. So, so what they do is they just wait you out. They just wait you out. They just keep themselves safe. They wait you out, and then, and then you're you're gonna you're gonna give it to them, for sure. You know, sure. and then you know, and if you watch like two upper belts, it's more like watching a chess match. Like they're very, 
methodical and they're very intentional on what they do hmm. with moments of like chaos, you know, as they scramble or whatever. But then it goes back to just that methodical uh, chess match, very yeah. strategic. And, and that actually brings me to something I, I've been, I was wanting to ask you about, which is this idea of uh, moving at the appropriate speed, like when it's important to go fast and when it's important to go slow. And, and you said something uh, yesterday when we were sort of talking in, in prep for this podcast about the idea of using seconds to get minutes, right, yes. which also comes into this idea of speed. So I, can, can you dig into that for us? What does that mean, using seconds to get minutes? So I, I, I try to say a lot of time, like, um, uh, saving seconds buys you minutes later on. So if, if you can, like, I, 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 I teach like a threat assessment, like on, on security, uh, off and on. And, and I, and I try to tell like the, the security people like of like a facility, if you identify, um, where your vulnerabilities start. So like if you have a building and you have a perimeter, identifying in that perimeter um, where you feel competent to respond to. So, and then know where your red line is. You have to know where your red line is. And by knowing that red line, because it's going to take me seconds to respond to that red line, but if they get beyond that red line, it's going to take me extra time, minutes, to unravel the situation that uh, uh, the chaos hmm. is... And Wait, Ryan, d define red line for us here. So I think like uh, I think everybody has has a defined red line. Um, it's like when you're driving, you know, like if if you're tired, your reaction is going to be slower. So you should put more space between you and the car in front of you. Gotcha. If you're, you know, not not the recommended, but even more, you know, it's the the per the perf the person that's in the perfect condition environment, well rested. Uh, trained, you know, they can, they can keep that pace, uh, that distance between them and the car in front of them a little tighter. Um, gotcha. So like you need to identify like where your capabilities are and what your red line is to where if it gets inside this red line, it's going to take me longer to unravel it. Um, so seconds buys you minutes. And I talk about like in, in, uh, um, uh, school, school, safety like school shooting um if the teacher can it, it takes seconds to lock that door um it's going to buy them minutes because the the person that's trying to get in the door uh it, it's locked um, they can't see in the room it's going to dissuade them and then that's going to like those few seconds is going to frustrate uh the the assailant to allow the proper law enforcement to show up and deal with them so it's going to mm -hmm. buy you minutes um, but it only took you a couple of seconds to do it, but it just see, it just, you, you can, you can ride the storm out for several more minutes, hmm. you know, um, you know, in jujitsu, if you get yourself in the right defensive position, you can, you can weather the storm a little bit longer. You know, if, you, if your knees and elbows are connected and you, you know, and you keep that space and that distance, you know, you can weather the storm longer. So, but it only took you a moment to put yourself in that position. Hmm. Uh, and now you can last longer. So it buys you minutes. So going back again to that idea of, of control, acting where you have control and putting the, the things in process that will that will build the structures that you can survive in for later things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that's like knowing your limitations. 
you know, and, and it's okay to like, um, it's okay to have, uh, different limits than the next person. You know, if your distance is further out because it takes you longer to respond, that's okay. It's just, it's known. So now you can, you can train, you can train your vulnerabilities to shorten that distance. If, if you need that distances to be shorter, um, hmm. you know, if you, if you, you know, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example, uh, three little pigs you know i mean you got the house of straw to the house of bricks right like if you have the brick house it's going to last a lot longer you know until the authorities can show up and take care of the bad wolf but if you live in the straw house like you only have a few moments before your house or your perimeter is compromised mm. so but but that's okay as long as you know that if you know that you put your front yard fence further out to keep the wolf from coming in but if you have the brick house you may not even need a fence because the, the fence is the front door you know, as I try to think of like analogies on examples, I, no, I'm, like a, I'm like a visual person. <laughs> that's perfect, man. That's perfect. I, I love a, I love a podcast that includes uh, explosive ordinance and three little pigs in the same uh, the same right. place. <laughs> Amazing. You gotta keep keep it simple. Exactly. And <laughs> I, so I can't even believe this, Ryan. But we've been going for about 45 minutes already, man, which doesn't feel like it at all. Um, uh, let me take a second and sort of recap some of what we've been some of what we've been up to and and take it from there. Um, I think one of the biggest things we've been hitting is the idea over and over again of focusing on the basics of your skill set, of getting really good at the the core uh, discipline of your work, and then being able to deploy that competently in a variety of situations. Uh, in, along with that is the idea of of trusting in yourself and trusting in those skill sets so that you can find the next move, whatever it is that you need it to be. Um, with that, we talked about how to train that, how to how to deliver that. Uh, package under pressure, and which involves the ideas of, of compounding training, um, using basic skills instead of ninja skills, uh, and then developing training that that gets you to apply that in a graduated sense, going towards things that are, are rigorous, realistic, and real-world training. Um, ultimately, with the idea of trying to produce people that are strong enough at their basics, but also flexible enough to deploy them in a variety of situations. Um, and the three little pigs, yep. which is just yep. the bottom of that list. Uh, <laughs> phenomenal, man. Any, anything big that, that I missed there? No, I think, that, I think, that, I think you nailed it. Like that's, I think you strung them all together. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. Cause the more I even talk about, as I'm thinking about it now, like it's, it's the basics, it's the core skills, it's the core mm -hmm. skills of life that allow you to get out the door, Yeah. you know, and then, and then you just, you just learn your environment. Yeah. You know, I mean, that that's what allows you to live in one town and go visit another town. It's the core skills, the basics. If you overthink it, then you're just going to struggle. You're going to get through it. It's just not going to be as smooth. Mm. I mean, we in 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 shooting, we talk about the same stuff. Like it's the same core skills. Smooth is slow, is smooth and smooth is fast. Right. Like, I mean, whatever analogies you want to throw out there. But like, yeah everything I can think of as you implement it, the core skills allow you to start the process. And then the more you implement the core skills, the smoother they get, it allows you to implement something else. And next thing you know, you're, you're busting out ninja skills, you know, it, but you have to start, you have to start at the very bottom and that's okay. Everybody starts there, but just taking your time, recognizing it, identifying what those basics and those core skills are, and then mastering those core skills and then implementing those core skills or basics in whatever operational environment you put yourself into. 
dude, amazing. I, like, there's so much more. You're gonna have to come back on for another round at some point soon. That and, sounds good. <laughs> um, I have I have two questions for you as we sort of wrap up here. Uh, one is something I've always wanted to ask somebody. Uh, who is an expert at what you do, which is if I have to only cut the green wire or the red wire, which wire do I cut? Uh, the yellow one. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> Got to find – there's a yellow one in there somewhere. <laughs> Look for the other options that might be hidden yep. at the beginning. Excellent, yep. man. The amazing, amazing drop of wisdom right there. Um, <laughs> and my, uh, my final question as we close this out um, – is uh, to ask you for a challenge, which is that do you have a challenge uh, for me as an ER doctor, for the listeners of this podcast in whatever whatever way that they participate in emergencies and train, uh, or for anybody else? What's your what's your challenge that we can start to take on? Um, I think I think like in the medical world, where I mean, there's so much brilliance in in su- such high levels in the medical world, or the engineering world or the technical world, whatever it is, is to identify where your core skills are, to re- remember where you came from and, and write those down and share them with your friends. Because what I find is people start to, they, they don't think that's what it is. They don't think it's the core skills that get them through. So it's like the next shift you go on and whatever chaotic scenario, once it's over with, do an after action review of what it was and identify what it was that allowed you to start to work. I guarantee you, you're going to find it was the core skills. I mean, you said it, ABC, right? Mm-hmm. Like when the paramedics show up, they do nothing else other than go, what do I have? Airway, breathing, circulation. And so whatever the most challenging scenario is in, in, in the ER, when it's all said and done and that person is, is off, off to healing, rewind it back with your team and go, which core skills did we implement? Mm-hmm. And then And then think about, the last shift and whatever chaos you had in there and rewind it and go and see and see if you find a common theme. It doesn't matter what the, the scenario was, but rewind it and see. You'll, I guarantee you there's going to be a common theme and it's going to come back to the same core skills in your field. Dude, amazing. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, total honor to talk to you today. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you too. Yeah, we're gonna we'll spin up round two sometime real soon. That sounds fun. I'm right down. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.